before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 79. As always, joined by the three Migos. We got uh, Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management, and Rich Diaz of Acorn Macro Consulting. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Keith, what's going on? Uh, springtime, and uh, which is great because, you know, in, in Nova Scotia, when it's springtime, the first sunny day of the year, everyone wears shorts and t-shirts. And of course, like everyone is like, everyone is so, they're, they're just, Hastily, <laughs> they've no tan for a long time. You got that happening. But I had a great conversation this week with with a couple. Um, you know, we're chatting with him. They say, "Yeah, yeah, we, you know, we watch the Looney Hour all the time." And I said, well, "Who's your favorite person on the Looney Hour?" And they don't even hesitate. They don't even hesitate. There's, they say, "Oh, Rich, Rich by a long shot." And I said, "Hey, that makes sense." Then, of course, comes the, the awkward second question. You know, who's your next favorite? And the answer to that one was, oh, Boomer by a long shot. So, Steve, you're, you're, ranking, one. you're ranking pretty low out there. You got to bring yeah. it up. You got to raise the game. Story of my life. Keith, you strike me as like a jorts guy. Are you a jorts guy? What? Jean what is shorts? a jort? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't, I, I don't even know what they are, actually. See, I can see you busting out Mrs. Icecap's jorts. <laughs> <laughs> no, I visual never heard of, the visual. Never heard those, of jorts. There's those paste, shorts white thighs. and jeans. I can see how you're rich. What's new with you, man? Well, I've been reliably informed that this is, in fact, Alberta. So there you go. Thanks for our keen-eyed uh, listeners and and watchers um, who um, who, like who Moraine, let us know. Right? I, oh, now I forgot. Now you got me. I, I, I just saw the Alberta and I was just like, all right, check. Um, otherwise, same old, same old. Pretty quiet week this week. Been trying to keep, be healthy and go to the gym. Um, I must. I, I, I've been have been promising a shout out to a good friend, Evan Paperman from Woodland Capital for literally seven months. And every time I see him, I tell him I'm going to give him a shout out. And then I proceed to forget. So there you go, Evan. How's it going? He's a loyal listener. Him and his whole team—they're in the, the the real estate game as well. Um, so there you go. There's your finally after all of these months, I got I gave him a, a shout out. Send your uh, donations yes, do. into the show. What, what does he do? do? Yeah, he actually works do? in the real. They work in real estate, not quite commercial real estate. Do they do? Um, I'd say flipping, but flipping has like a negative connotations. I'd say like they do it, but with a lot of love. Like they really they take. Yeah, rehabs. They take um, older sort of duplexes and triplexes and even I think they're getting into larger multifamily stuff and they really just breathe new life into them is the way I would probably describe. They've really, you can see what they've done on their website. And from what I understand, um, yeah, they've, they've, you know, they take kind of shitty old places and turn them into wonderful places for people to live. Where with, where are they based? Montreal they based? in Montreal. Sorry, hey, I forgot to say you know that. that. You know, that's a vote to be illegal in B.C.? What do you mean? I'm not even joking. The BC government, oh, okay. Sorry. The BC government, and in, uh, in their infinite wisdom, is coming out with a uh, we're calling it like a flipper tax. 
So I think it's like if you buy and hold, if you buy and resell a home within like two years, they're going to like tax you even more so than what CRA would tax you. I don't know. We're waiting for the details, but it's interesting. My my friend's not running a charity. Like obviously they're they're in it to make money and hopefully, you know, God, God willing, he'll make lots of money. But I think what, but genuinely I do know that they take stuff that has just been beaten up and uncared for and breathe new life into them, new everything and, and then. Yeah, so there you go. They're finally after all of this time. I mean, we <laughs> there's should a very long-winded shout-out. Anyone in you, Montreal oh, that wants some help with restoring an old property, give give yeah, Evan and his, and his friends a, a call. There you go. There you go. Honestly, though, there is like a genuine specialty in doing that. Like to 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 know the right trades and to be able to like execute a product, and then you also have to have like a lot of cash and liquidity. So when they're doing this, do they wear jorts? It would make sense logically. No, no, you it's can put not a helmet need... in the loop, right? Don't they have a? No, loop you need in, you need PPE. You need PPE. PPE personal pr- personal protective equipment. Come on, boys. <laughs> all right, let's go. Anyways, all right. Uh, so the Bank of Canada, uh, to to no one's surprise, we didn't even have a Twinkie bet on it because it was. Such a shoe in, um, but a, a, a pause or an ongoing pause from the Bank of Canada. Um, you know, we'll get into that, Rich, some of the uh, commentary from Tiff Macklem, but sort of my quick summarization on it was basically it kind of, Keith, it kind of felt like a bit of a, like a dovish kind of pause. They basically said, like, things are progressing as we expected. You know, while inflation is still high, it's getting closer towards our goal. And they've gotten, you know, CPI headline is CPI inflation getting to 3% this summer. Growth is starting to, you know, they've revised their growth forecasts higher. So they're kind of basically calling for this really soft, gentle landing. Um, But correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if you've read anything differently. No, that's exactly what's happening here. And, um, I mean, so that the best analogy now is uh, if, if anyone's ever gone mountain climbing, if you're a climber, you know, you're trying to get to the top and you you, you make it there and you think, hey, it's this is great. It, it's awesome. Uh, but the climb's not over. You, you still got to make your way down. It's the American climber, Ed Vesters, if, if you know that guy. He, he talks about that all the time. So with, you know, the the Bank of Canada and the whole inflation story and stuff, they're, you know, they're clearly on the way, on the way back down using, you know, your your favorite you know, inflation metric. Um, and, you know, you're, you're just hoping on the way down, they don't, you know, fall into a crevasse or trip on a rock or an avalanche hits you or, or something like that. But, you know, they were, they were pretty uh, happy with, with themselves yesterday and, and they should, because nothing has broken yet. You know, you know, a few folks got hurt in the housing market, maybe, you know, and, and I mean that tongue in cheek, because obviously a lot of people are struggling right now with, trying to pay for stuff and, and, you know, the increase in housing costs. Uh, but from the bank of Canada perspective, uh, they, they, they're continuing to wait to see the impact on the economy, you know, from basically going from zero to four and a half in, in a very short time frame. And remember, not only did the Canadians do it, but the Americans did it and the Aussies and the Brits and, and everyone else. And this has never been tried before. So we, we still don't know yet. So we continue to have this experience around the world where, you know, everyone is, you know, forecasting some kind of a hard landing somewhere to develop. And, and yet it's, it still hasn't happened yet. So it's a bit of a, 
this awkward moment. But the Canadians right now, you know, yesterday you fully expected them to come out and say, yeah, you know, it's, it's all going as, as planned. We're not going to hike now, but we will hike if we need to. Guys, they're not going to hike again. There's no more there's no more rate hikes coming from Canada. Um, but we'll we'll see now if things continue to get. In, I think if things continue to trend in that same direction that they want. So, Rich, before we jump over to you, I think um, I think he also like signaled. I mean, obviously, I think they have to, but he, I think they were signaling or they, they mentioned in their commentary, you know, people that are markets that are trying to price in rate cuts from the Bank of Canada this year. He he, he pushed back on that. Um, so, yeah, it just seems kind of like an ongoing pause. Nothing, nothing too exciting. But Rich, I don't know if you had any sort of takeaways from any of that. Um, yeah, well, I'm going to give Tiff. Mackland, uh, some props. Uh, I listened to the, the presser because it's kind of, it was kind of a slow week and I'm quite impressed with his French. Uh, he used really, really big words and he did it with Oplum and, uh, he was, he was really, really good. I have to say I was super, super impressed with his French. So I tipped my hat to Tiff. Um, so that was like one of my takeaways. Are you um, fluent um, by the way? I am fluent. Je parle français. Um, plus or moins bien. Um, but I, you know, I'm quite proud of being Canadian. I think it's amazing that our central banker did it in both official languages. I, I venture a guess that we're the only country in the world whose central banker can speak both French and English. So there you go. That that's one. Uh, and wait, tip of the half to, to, to be tip. fair, that's a very important attribute for any central banker to be able to. No, not it doesn't no, of matter. Of course not. No, of course it doesn't <laughs> matter. I just think it's cool. That's all. No, no, no. Don't get me started on diversity, equity, and inclusion. <laughs> That's anyways, we're gonna get in trouble now. But no, I just think it's cool. That was it. Um, as far as like the actual policy stuff, I actually so there's a bit of controversy, boys. I thought it was much more sort of hawkish than I was expecting, given that it was a obviously no move, and given that he was arguing that um that you know, I, I agree with uh, Keith, they're not going to raise rates. So, Rich, how can you say that it's hawkish if they're not going to raise rates? I think a couple of things. One is that he said, um, you know, he mentioned the services price inflation. Um, you know, to to quote him, it says services price inflation also remains high and is expected to decline only gradually. This will take some time. And then, and so I think, and then he also said that the biggest upside risk um, is that services prices inflation should be stickier than projected. So this is something we've talked about a lot um, because well, where sometimes we get stuff right, I guess. But the but I think that's the part um, he said. You know that's really important. And just to add on, um, you know, if the labor market remains tight, which you know, um, you know, and then he said, I think inflation it'll take you know, and um, said believe, uh, and companies believe they can continue to pass on higher costs without restraint because consumers expect higher prices. So again, something we talked about, which is the inflation expectations if they get entrenched. And he said, then inflation will take longer to get back. To, or he said, inflation will take a while to get back to target. It'll be more difficult to get back to target. So yes, he's clearly not going to raise rates, but I think that I think that what's coming through here is number one, the services to the inflation expectations and three, the labor market thing that we've been talking a long time. So I thought that was sort of, from in my view, that was sort of different, or it was interesting that he highlighted that. And he had revised you, GDP forecast higher. Sorry, they revised GDP forecast higher, I believe. Ah, uh, yes. Well, we have lots to say on that, don't we? <laughs> say I think it. they didn't. They they pulled it 
ahead a little bit, didn't they? Didn't they just they pulled some in twenty three and then yeah. So I mean, well, I'll just. I mean, they said that they, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of forecasts and I don't, I think it's unfair to sort of like hold for like these guys to these forecasts because, you know, things happen, of course, but, you know, they said, you know, what I just thought was they crystallized something that we discussed again, discussed quite a bit, which is that uh, Canadians will be poor <laughs> on a per capita basis uh, by the end of this year. And I'm sorry, I'm laughing because again, it's just so absurd. And uh, and it's because they think uh, GDP, the global economy will grow by 2.6 and whatever. But effectively, it's a, what they keep talking about is growth is going to be okay. Growth is going to be okay. But he, they skate over the population thing over and over again. And that's a question that I thought was really interesting that they didn't ask. Um, and, and again, I, I think it's just too controversial. No one wants to be a jerk. They saying immigration's bad. No one's saying that again. It's about the per capita number that I think will continue to weaken. Remember, we're still below the pre the pre pandemic peak and now falling It's two quarters in a row now that our per capita GDP is falling. So that was an interesting sort of wrinkle as well. Apparently, uh, I was just reading some stuff on Twitter here. Stats can't put out these estimates and stuff. Um, they've got actually upgraded their like dashboard for um, a lot of their data analysis so that you can go and look at it. But anyways, apparently, they, so we had a million people in 2022. Apparently, they're targeting one and a half million in 2023. Now, they don't target foreign students and, and uh, foreign workers and stuff, but they do target higher PRs. But uh, apparently, the projections are potentially for a million and a half. Now, keep in mind, the Bank of Canada also flagged this in the report that a lot of the immigration that's coming through uh, is um, the inflows are skewing heavily towards temporary residents. So that could add to the volatility uh, should the economy roll over and there become, you know, less jobs than than people could obviously leave the country. And all of a sudden, you know, that that narrative or that story that's supporting housing, for example, uh, could actually see outflows. That reminds me of another T word that I think we should absolutely question. Certainly, uh, remember the whole transitory, how they told us that inflation was going to be transitory? Well, I would, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this, I, this temporary workers, I'm going to bet you that they're going to stay in Canada because Canada is a beautiful place to live. And why would you, you know, if, given we where we know these people are coming from and the age at which they're coming from, remember, I, I actually screwed up that stat a little while ago. But anyway, it's they're basically mostly young people. My bet is that they're not going to go home. They're going to stay in Canada because Canada's great. So um, I, I think I call BS on that. They're all um, wearing jorts oh, now in Halifax. Oh, there's one more thing. Sorry, there's one more thing. One of the questions from the reporters I thought was really interesting, and Tiff in his, he, I'll give him credit. He skated right around this like a like a dirty like a dirty hip check in the middle of the ice. Uh, somebody referenced the deficit spending and if deficits would uh, have an impact on inflation going forward. And oh man, I give again. I'm giving him lots of props today, so I'm I'm fair and balanced. Uh, he's just like, no, it's in it's in it's incorporated in our model. Blah blah blah. Of course, if you run major budget deficits and you massively blow out your your budget, of course it's going to have um, in, impacts on inflation because. And he admitted as much, although it was a slight little, you have to be really listening carefully. We're already above potential GDP. And by running those deficits, you are basically entrenching yourself above potential GDP, e.g. And so you have like um, a positive like output gap and a positive output gap is inflationary. <laughs> anyway, so that's sorry, I'm, that's done, so I'm done saved, for now. He but... saved his job is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
<laughs> no, but credit to him, man. He did a really good. He just skated right around that because, like, oh, what is he gonna do? He can't, like, you know, throw his benefactor under the bus, right? Man, I think Rich is on fire today. You've been right. You're, you're, I think you might do like a Gordy Howe hat trick by the time <laughs> the uh, episode is over. Who's he and, fighting? Uh, <laughs> not me. I hope, I hope it's you. <laughs> but no, Rich is right in that. Uh, you know, especially the comments. You know, about the deficit and and everything. And I mean, like you know, the, these guys. Unlike the Looney Hour, these guys actually go through all the different scenarios what could come at them during the presser and everything. Because I think if you know us, we sort of just you know show up and you know, have a chat. Uh, you know, so you knew that question was going to come. Uh, the central bank is supposed to be you know neutral and all that. However, it 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 ain't neutral. It is going to say it's not going to say anything negative. You know, towards Ottawa, no matter who is. Uh, running Ottawa at the time. So, uh, but the, you know, Rich made some really good points in that on, on the face of it, it all looks pretty nice in Canada right now and that they're on the way to achieving, I say they, the, the Bank of Canada are on the way to achieving their monetary objectives. However, underneath the hood here, um, you know, they, they have to be concerned, you know, especially about the banks and the housing market. Uh, there, there's a really good... Um, data point came out a few days ago uh, about down in the US, all the banks were selling off their uh, mortgage portfolios. And um, so, you know, banks are getting this stuff off their books. Um, you know, the question is that, well, somebody has to be buying it. But, you know, the, the banks, they are quarterly reporting financial entities that are levered, you know, 10 to 30 times. So they have an incentive to get this stuff off if, if they have to. Whereas the, the people who are buying it are usually pension funds and, you know, they don't have quarterly reporting. You know, they have generational time horizons and stuff like that. I haven't seen the equivalent uh, transactions taking place in Canada. So I, I don't know what's happening up here. But uh, I, I can assure you the Bank of Canada, it wasn't mentioned this time during the presser or in the, uh, the monetary policy report. I don't think it was, but uh, you know they have to be concerned with housing, but more importantly, concerned about the banks and and their mortgage portfolios. So we have banks coming out again soon with their earnings report. We'll see what they're doing with provisioning, but you know this, you, this is going to snake its way through here. On the mortgage more. side, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Would you be more concerned? I have my opinion, but would you be more concerned for the bank's portfolio regarding their sort of commercial mortgages? or residential i mean i would argue both but you're always more concerned with residential because it's, it's so much bigger than the commercial side right Is so it, yeah, okay interesting yeah it, it, it's a lot bigger um so because of that just a small move rich you're good with numbers right a small move on a bigger number can overwhelm a bigger move on a smaller number um however buddy if you're using the you know the u.s market you know, as a as a barometer or a benchmark right now, uh, it, increasingly there's a lot of concern about the CMBS commercial mortgage backed security market down in the U.S. And um, I know I know Steve, you introduced this to our conversation a few weeks ago, and uh, it, it's coming up as well. So banks don't like to lose money in any market they're in, but the residential side is bigger than the commercial side. Uh, it's so kind of, they get hit on both sides. I hope not, but it's kind of interesting you know, when you kind of like when you kind of like peel back the onion. Um, you know, because the uh, if you saw it was in uh, San Francisco, it was a sales Salesforce 
uh, just dumping basically a hundred thousand square feet of office space, prime office space in downtown San Francisco. It's like, you know, a mass, a massive tech company like that, just paring back some of their office space. And like, you know, you look at San Fran, they've kind of been like, you know, it's a major Metro where, I mean, they've been hollowed out, right? Like all the tech, tech layoffs followed by like work from home pandemic stuff. And so it's like, you have all like, basically the downtown has become like this, like, you know, vacant dumping ground. And yeah, but uh, San the- Francisco is also, I sort of interrupt you, but it's, it's like the walking dead there. Like it's, it's horrific. Right. No, I mean, I agree, yeah. but then it's like at the end of the day, it's like, well, someone's issued loans against the collateral of that real estate. Uh, number one. And number two is how much of the city's, uh, you know, tax revenue base is based off of, you know, property taxes and, and revenues coming in from those. I don't know. I just find it interesting. I, I think that, uh, you it's know. Steve, 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 that's California. That stuff doesn't matter out there. <laughs> Yeah, just forget Ooh, further about it, inland to see real economics. <laughs> well, I just find it interesting because, like, you know, we talked about in the show a couple of weeks ago, which is like Calgary already went through this post the oil collapse in what 2014, 2015, where all of a sudden, you know, all this empty office space came came up, and then now we're sort of seeing it a bit on the tech side. And the it's Calgary like, space it, it's still quite empty-ish. It's like it? tw- twenty. It, the numbers, I think, officially, like the occupancy rate, is about twenty-two, twenty-three percent. Uh, people argue that it's closer to twenty-five to thirty still. Um, so you just have a lot of buildings. Again, they just they just sorry, vacancy rate or occupancy rate. Sorry, uh, so vacancy rate. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So it's it's yeah it's basically a quarter of the office buildings essentially are vacant. So. There was another thing that Carolyn Rogers, the deputy governor, um, said, which I thought was interesting that just came to mind, which was um, they I think one of the reporters I'm going to screw this up. So forgive me. One of the reporters effectively said, you know, um, why wouldn't if you're if these inflation issues are still entrenched, why wouldn't you raise rates further or something to that effect? And again, sorry if I've garbled it, but and, you know, she and then Tiff, you know, passed her the puck and then she made some reference to how there's still it's only effectively she's saying it's only been a year really since they've raised interest rates from whatever 0.25 to 450 or whatever it is and you know i'm reading between the lines is i think that there's some more pain to be felt from the debt servicing costs and how they're still feeding through so um, I was just wondering for, and then that's why I want to ask you, Steve. I mean, is that something that you're sort of when when people are sort of approaching you for homes and stuff? Is that I know that obviously, you know, their their affordability has changed, but is that something that people are are they sell? Are, is anybody selling out of their homes to go smaller because of that, or or is that maybe I'm just overthinking it? Uh, yeah, anecdotally, uh, yes, I've had a few of those conversations, uh, and you know, chatting with other realtors that have their clients and why are they moving, why are they buying? And so, yes, anecdotally, some of those conversations are definitely coming up. I I think, I know that uh, the Bank of Canada mentioned that, uh, you know, higher interest rates still have yet to bite for a lot of Canadian households because, you know, for example, people that are coming up on their fixed rate mortgages for renewal, you know, all of a sudden you're going from a 3% mortgage rate to 5.2% today. And so like that's going to sort of feed through um, and I, I think that I think that is the case. It's interesting because, like on the residential side, we've talked about on the show, is I think we're kind of like in timeout period right now. We're on like a break, which is like the housing market right now. Prices are actually accelerating higher 
because you've got people not listing their houses on the market, you have a 20 year low nationally in new listings. And so it's kind of suppressed, like what I think is, should still be a correction to the downside, given where mortgage rates are, given where if you look at the RBC's affordability index, it's the worst it's ever been. Like people are paying, you know, we're seeing what we're seeing right now is we're seeing, you know, a lot of these entry level houses going back into multiple offers, five, 10, 15 offers on a house right now. Very, very common. And people are bidding them up, not quite to the peak prices of last year, but like we're probably only maybe maybe 10% from down from those peak prices at this point. And, uh, you know, mortgage rates are still in the fives. So, and I think that's more a factor of there is no new listings. And I don't think 20 year lows and new listings is going to be sustainable. I think at some point we're going to have some sort of normalization in listings coming to market. And that maybe will that could resume your next sort of leg down potentially, but you need to get inventory off what it is right now, rock bottom lows. And that is is not going to happen overnight. So maybe that comes with a recession and job loss. And I, I don't know. I mean, Keith, I don't know if you have any comments on this, but it, you know, it, it, that's, that's how I'm looking at it. Well, I mean, one thing I love about the housing market, it's, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's just simple economics. It's supply versus demand. That's what it comes down to. It's very um, emotional on the residential side. Sure. I'm not an emotional guy. So. No, I know you're not, but I'm saying like, like the people that are out there competing right now, it's I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that people are willing to compete with seven other bidders and bid up a house it, when you're like, you know, people are talking about recession and mortgage rates are in the fives and you run in your mortgage calculator. Like, Oh, that's a really large payment. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I'm joking by the way, uh, not about being emotional, but about, I do know it is an emotional purchase and could, you can be looking for a long time and finally you find the, the dream home and you got to stretch yourself. And then, you know, you're told, well, you know, 10 other people have bid. It suggests that you do this or that. And you, I, I know what that 24 hour period could feel like, but just from a pure investment perspective, if you have lower supply or supply is not catching up with demand, I mean, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're going to have these periods coming through here. Um, but the most important thing though is that you mentioned, Steve, is that you know that that can get corrected pretty quickly. It takes a while to correct supply, of course, but the demand side can be corrected. And that is with a, you know, this magical recession, you know, that, you know, we we, you know, we continue to expect we're going to get some kind of a, a slowdown here coming up. And uh, but everyone's been expecting that. It was gone from Q4 last year to Q1. Now maybe in the second half it's gonna it's gonna come off and no 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 now it's gonna be twenty four, and hey you know maybe we will, you know have that soft landing, but if we don't get the soft landing and someone falls behind on debt payments or is at the government side or household or, or corporate, and that's when it begins to tumble very quickly. So I guess I guess the point here is that we are not out of the woods yet you know by no means like don't don't confuse like a nice warm and fuzzy bank of canada meeting with yeah it's it's safe to go back out and, and do stuff again you want to know a really interesting stat like just kind of rounding out our conversation regarding the commercial real estate space with your residential so you've got the residential space again that's been more resilient because you've had this this very lack of new listings 
Um, there was a tweet out the other day from a guy named Brandon Donnelly. Uh, so he's in the development space. He's got a very widely followed newsletter uh, in the Canadian in the Canadian real estate space. So he's a pretty well respected guy. Uh, so he tweeted. He says a big bank just told me that they haven't done a development acquisition loan since the spring of 2022. This is a leading indicator for new housing supply. So basically what he's saying is one of the large banks that he was chatting with, they haven't done, they haven't issued a, a new loan for the purchase of raw land uh, in, in Canada since the spring of 2022, which is- All of Canada. Yeah, and again, he didn't obviously didn't tweet and mention which bank it was, but- No, no, I, mean, I got you. This is a pretty, pretty well-respected guy. This isn't some like random on Twitter that's just firing, you know, stuff out for clicks. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, it's how long, like for, for that one year gap, basically, has it happened before? Well, I know. I think that the big thing is like, you know, you chat with like developers and stuff right now, like the numbers, the numbers don't pencil. So you're like, you're, you're running it, you're running your numbers, you, you, the cost of the land, like it hasn't really come down because there's not like, there's not a lot of turnover. So you're not really getting any of that price discovery. So the cost of land acquisition is still really high. Your cost of construction, while your costs have moderated, it's still really, really expensive to build. And your cost of financing the, the build is extremely expensive, you know? construction financing costs right now. That's, that's so like you're running these numbers and you're saying, okay, well, when I build this condo and have to pre-sell it to the market, what am I going to get? And like, yeah, the, the market has firmed up on a price perspective, but prices aren't, prices haven't really gone up. They've, you know, they're still down from what they were 12 months ago. So anyways, you run as a developer running a pro forma, the numbers don't really pencil. And so I think you kind of have this bit of a standoff where, um, yeah, ultimately, the way I look at it, say, okay, well, we'll probably see supply shortages. We'll see this filter through into the real market two, three, four years from now. Um, the lack of new housing starts. Um, so, and it, I think the big thing, too, is what's the economic drag of that, right? If, if, if developers aren't out there buying new land, running permits, starting construction, I mean, that's a huge component. Rich, you know the data. Like, it's a huge component of the, of the economy. Yeah, we're already seeing seeing the drag, right? I mean, that's this is what I mean. With not to like be a broken record, be a broken record, but this is what we talked about. I think six or seven months ago, it's like when you have a housing bubble, and so much of your growth is devoted to um, residential investment, gross fixed capital formation. This is sort of the fancy way of saying it. Um, in in residential, remember we talked about how it was as high as it was in. Ireland and Spain, so upwards of eight, nine, ten percent of GDP. When you do have the pullback, it's very, very difficult to not have a sustained drag on your GDP growth. Um, so I think that we're partly seeing. Uh, but can I ask you a question, Steve? So you know, we talked about the rate reset, and we talked about like low inventories. I'm always, I'm always trying to figure out, you know, new and interesting ways of sort of getting a bead on economic data that some, maybe people haven't thought about before, or maybe gives you better real-time data, or sometimes I just try to be clever, which often fails. But would you suggest that if we do see a, a significant uptake in inventory, that that's reflecting the rate reset biting, or am I being too cute? Uh, I might be a bit too simplistic. I think there's definitely gonna be people that are like holding on though. I mean, I definitely think like mortgage arrears are going to increase over the next 12 to 18 months for sure. But like, is it going to be enough to like oversupply the market? I, 
Okay. I don't know. I'm a little bit skeptical on that front. I think I think you're going to need to see a recession, and then how deep is that recession, and how many jobs get lost? Basically, you know, so you see the foreign workers kind of leave. You see more houses hitting the market. A few more for sales. You see a little bit weaker demand, and you allow inventory to build. And when inventory starts building, then you get downwards pressure on prices. But right now, like inventory is not building at all. So. Okay. It's just, it's very weird. It's hard because you're running all these like data points and you're trying to sort of like predict the future and the direction of the housing market. And like, honestly, like not a lot of it makes a whole lot of sense right now. Fair. Sort of in, in line with that, uh, sort of moving away from Canada a little bit now. Uh, I just saw a great survey that came out this week. So they're surveying uh, fund managers in both U.S., North American and Europe. And in the U.S., uh, 81%. They expect credit defaults to increase this year in 23. So 81%. That's basically everyone except, you know, two lads, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for the European number, do you know what that number is, Rich? Higher or lower? I don't know. Bad. It's probably lower because <laughs> they're, they're what always What percentage of European managers expect credit defaults to increase? Oh, lower, think? lower. Definitely lower. <laughs> That's what I would have thought as well, right? You're thinking, hey, we they're never more have... naive. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Never, nothing bad's gonna happen. It's we got our Pinot. It's nice outside. <laughs> Don't get them started on the Pinot. <laughs> Did someone say Pinot? Uh, <laughs> hold on to your hat. Hold on, everyone. This maybe this is a hip check in the middle of the, uh, uh, of the pitch. Ninety-one uh, percent of European managers expect credit defaults to, to increase in, in 23. So again, we keep going back to this in environment where markets are pricing in a, a slowdown, which implies a recession, credit defaults. They're expecting central banks to turn dovish, start cutting rates and, and things like that. And yet we're not seeing it yet in financial markets. So we still have that disconnect. I know last week we talked about, you know, we were, you know, suddenly we shifted from where, you know, bad data was good to all of a sudden bad data is is bad. And this week is, I think we're back to bad is good again. <laughs> yeah. but it, it can be Sounds a bit like the confusing. Market here too. Yeah, it, it can be a bit confusing. But again, I just want everyone to realize, you know, we, we do this from a Canadian centric, of course, uh, but you have to appreciate how things are developing outside of Canada. And again, the expectation is for the economy to deteriorate, just both in the US as, as well as Europe. Uh, I didn't see any Canadian data, by the way. Um, and then if you have a deteriorating economy, it means that there's job losses, uh, less earnings growth. It means, you know, some folks aren't able to pay their debt back and, you know, you get write-offs and stuff like that. But we, you know, we continue to go down that path. You know, that that's where we're going. Um, well, I saw something interesting as well this week with Warren Buffett. You guys see well, before that? you before you go on to that, because there's, but I want to just add something to your your point about sort of deteriorating data, which is, um, so there's this thing called the U.S. recession probability indicator, um, which is from the New York Federal Reserve. I will share it in the Looney Hour Substack, and um, it basically uses the yield curve as a as part of a larger model. I think it's a logit or probit model. Anyway, it's too complicated for me. But the point is, is that now there's a 57.8 um, probability of a recession 
between in the next two to six quarters. And I think that that speaks to the issue I think we're sort of having, which is this holding period of not quite under, we, we think bad things are going to happen, but it's all about when, you know, in our six business quarters, being, man, we're yeah. going to be like episode so, 200 announcing. <laughs> well, session. God willing, but, but that, I mean, this is the problem where we, you have this, um, you know, this yield curve um, and the yield curve models that sort of, are, you know, are, that sort of mushroom off that. And unfortunately, there's sort of a wide range as far as in timing is concerned between two and six quarters. I mean, that's what a year, that's half a year and a year and a half. I figured it out. Um, and that's a, that's a, I mean, that's a long time. A, a lot can happen. The Leafs lose in the first round twice uh, in a year and a half. I mean, um, so, Ooh. you know, a lot of things, a lot of things can happen in a year and a half, but that's, I think that's the point. Sorry, Keith, but go back to Japan, but I think we're that, not going to be invited back to the hockey hall of fame with those comments. <laughs> oh man. Rich, Rich is a great Canadians fan. Hey, whenever they don't make the playoffs, what do you do? You like you bash the Leafs. Well, if we lose, oh, I don't want to jinx it, but if we lose next game and Arizona wins, we will have, we might, we'll be in the, in the lottery for, the great savior Connor Bedard. So wish us luck. <laughs> anyway, uh, Keith, boy. tell us about Japan. Sorry, There's Keith. No way we're ending the podcast on on that. So uh, okay, <laughs> let's go to uh, everyone's other favorite, you know, in hockey player. Uh, that didn't work out well. Warren Buffett went to Tokyo this week, and the guy doesn't travel around too much. I mean, how old is he now? How old is Warren? Isn't he? Isn't he? He's nine, 89? 88 or something. Oh, look it up. Go, I mean, keep, Munger keep must be 109 or something. I mean, the he, original boomer. Yeah, he had a great interview a few weeks ago. He's Man, 92. He was... Warren Buffet is 92. He looks pretty good Warren for 92. He looks yeah. great. Yeah, it's all that diet is. coke, man. It's the, and and McDonald's. <laughs> Don't forget the McDonald's. <laughs> no, it's Dairy Queen. He's a Dairy Queen boy. Oh, sorry, sorry. I knew it was something yeah, horrible yeah. like that. He owns he owns Dairy Queen. Uh, anyway, so uh, back a bit more serious uh, perspective. So he went to Tokyo this week. And um, he he owns shares in the main Japanese banks. Um, you're trying to figure out, okay, why the hell would Buffett go all the way over to Japan, right? It's not a nice weekend trip at all. And uh, so he's there. So that should catch your attention. Uh, then you'll step back and say, okay, why is he in Japan? Okay, he has investments in Japan, of course. He's invested in banks in Japan. And what's happened with, with the BOJ over the last week? Steve? Dave, you tell me. Rich. Rich. But again, they're getting hawkish a little bit. Well, they have the new the, the new governor has now officially, right. officially come on. <clears throat> I don't know if he's called the governor. I, I don't know what, what he is with, with the bank. It is, I think. Yeah. Yeah, the governor. Anyway, um, yeah, they're trying to figure out what what's going to go on here. So the fact that he's, you know, he made this, this special trip to see the banks, basically in in Tokyo, it implies that something is coming down in Japan. So whether they're going to relax the yield curve a, a little bit, or they, I don't know if they would hike short term rates, but that would adjust the yield curve as well. But it's likely something is happening in Japan. So he's there to. He's not figuring out. They're telling him what's <laughs> yeah. what's going to happen, or uh, maybe he, he's telling them what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe so. He might say, "Hey guys, I'm I'm pulling my equity out, whatever." Because if you guys probably don't remember, because you guys were quite young then, but when the housing market broke in 08, 09, you know, Buffett Buffett <laughs> helped to recapitalize the the U.S. banks with a convertible preferred share. Like he got. Probably the greatest financial deal 
in the history of all histories back then. And everyone thought, oh, he's just being, you know, real nice, you know, you know, Uncle Warren or something like that. No, no, this guy has become extremely wealthy and successful because he's always on the right side of the trade. And it's not from, you know, crunching a spreadsheet or anything. So don't be surprised to see some big news come out of uh, Japan over the next few days or, or weeks or something like that. So, and um, so this is something we remember, see, we talked about this a few weeks back when we said, um, you know, the, the opportunity is there now for a lot of uh, Japanese foreign, sorry, foreign investment made by Japanese entities. So they have their money across Europe and the US and Canada, stuff like that. So for that money to start coming back home, um, it, it has potential just to push the, the yen incredibly higher. Um, it, it could cause the bond market to come off quite a bit, things like that. But this could be something, it's not coming out of the blue because the loony hour is now telling you about it. And all of our friends in Ottawa and Bay Street who are listening, you, you know, you're getting a tip on it as well. But this, this is a big event. It's not getting a lot of attention, but it, it certainly should. Steve, you, what was your can, well, can, you walk, yeah, can you walk me through that? And perhaps the listeners that are trying to figure out what the implications are here. So let's just say new, new, new BOJ governor says, hey, you know what? Two decades of zero interest rate policy. You know, let's we're going to try to maybe gradually move away a little bit from that. We're going to start hiking interest rates. What is what is Warren Buffett thinking as a guy that has a position in some of these uh, Japanese banks? Yeah. So first of all, you had to figure out is, is your uh, at the bank is, is your are your assets is it asset sensitive or is it an asset liability sort of exposure? Because each bank can be somewhat different with the way they're positioned. So, I mean, they would give the banks a heads up before something like that would happen. Um, and just as the Canadians would do the same thing and the Americans and, and Europeans, and you, I mean, you're not going to do something to cause a run on your banks or cause like, you know these abnormal losses on, on their balance sheet. So he's there and there he's figuring, okay, this is what our exposures are. Uh, and this is how we could potentially make money on it, basically. But, you know, again, they would be giving the banks the heads up because he's involved with those banks. You know, they're going to bring them in because he has the power to attract a lot more capital or to even take capital out. So essentially rates rates up, these banks suffer losses on their bond holdings. But they also improve their net in, net interest margins, though, right? Remember, banks um, sort of borrow short and lend long. So if if the yield curve does, if they're talking about you know changing the yield curve or what have you, you have a situation. Some of these banks could go from never making any money at all um, and to making a little bit of money. Am I getting that right, Keith? Well, true, but wasn't that what we were told in the U.S.? And now, obviously, you know, we're seeing the, the issues that are emanating because deposits are are basically leaving a lot of these smaller banks. Slightly different though. Net interest margin in the U.S. are as high as they've been in two or three years. So I think that there's like the the SVB kind of you know badly run banks that have gotten squeezed by higher rates. But some banks are, are well. We're going to find out this this week because it's good or this month rather because it's earnings. But there's I mean I think that there's banks that are making lots of money on higher net interest margins. But Keith's going to correct me if I screwed that up. Uh, you're, you're you're there. You're, you're there. It, it's such a big the, the American market is. A, like it dwarfs everything else. So you can have some parts of the market that have very good net interest margins. Other ones that like the NIMS have been declining actually. Um, each bank can 
position their balance sheet differently. It, it's not a, you can't use a broad statement for the US market. But ironically, in Japan, like if, if the Bank of Japan, if they allow the yield curve to uh, either shift higher or let the long end go up, I mean, do you know who lose the most money on that policy move? The Japanese people. They uh, own 95% of the bonds, no? Central bank, yeah. The bank of Japan, the BOJ, yeah. They could have like gazillions of yens in, in losses on this. And it's no big deal, right? It's it, it really no big deal. But the point is, though, it, it could attract a lot of money coming So instead of looking at the perspective from Japan, you have to look at it from the perspective of elsewhere. Because if capital goes into one market by default, it's leaving another market. And, um, you know, the Americans will lose some capital, the Europeans are going to lose capital and stuff like that. So we'll, we'll see what happens with it. We don't okay, know the you're, answer you're, yet, you're, but we know right. something. it is big. It is big. You're, are you salivating over Japanese government bonds here or what? <laughs> I wouldn't be buying them, put it that way. <laughs> I mean, if you want to put a short on, uh, it's, it's pretty easy to do uh, if you have a, if you can trade futures. Uh, but we have that happening. Speak, um, well, there's another there's another thing that happened in Tokyo, which was that Warren Buffett admitted that he reads my Substack because he was basically talking about the energy transition and how it's a total waste of money. And oh, he didn't say that exactly. So I, I, I let me tone it down a little. Who's bit. Got, basically, who's, who, what's his big uh, oil and gas holdings again? Oh, I can't Occidental. Remember, sorry, I can't remember. But he he yeah, did he make Occidental. a point. Um, you know, he said basically, you know, you will be still be consuming the same amount of oil in five or whatever years and um, that we haven't there's not sufficient capex to meet that demand. Um, and this fly, this is something I've been saying for a long time. Um, and this flies in the face of a lot of the prognosticators who say that we're going to, you know, de decarbonize and move away from oil and what have you. And, um, you know, he's obviously played a lot of the inside game over, over the many, many years, but he's, he's a smart old man. I think we should listen to him. But anyway, that was, sorry, that was just tongue in cheek, really. Uncle Warren. He's a smart old man. <laughs> You're a smart old man too, Keith. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks. So <laughs> we've got, it. we've got, um, you know, we're just chatting the group chat there, but we've got, you know, a couple data points is, uh, US CPI was out this week. Uh, so Rich, uh, you know, if you want to unpack that as well, but also uh, it was the, the the money supply growth, which, uh, you know, rightfully got a lot of attention during the depths of the pandemic when it was shooting up like a hockey stick, uh, exponential growth. I think what M2 grow like 30% year over year at one point. And now we're, uh, we're rolling over uh, now contracting on a year over year basis. Again, this is the rate of change, of course, but um, you know, it's interesting to sort of overlay that, Keith or Rich. I know you've got some models, even uh, at Acorn, there, sort of trying to forecast inflation. I know you use a component of uh, of money money growth as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I I don't like models. I think people get married to them. I think people sort of fall in love with their models, and then instead of thinking about what's going on, they just repeat the model. But I do, in fact, have a model, and I think so. For me, it includes uh, money supply. Uh, producer prices, which are sorry, like they they often lead consumer prices. That's not unreasonable, or uh, that's actually rather intuitive as well. And then um, then the shelter component, which I, I will not reiterate, Steve, so that you don't kill me. But the um, but yeah, I mean it, it's clear that money supply is definitely falling, no matter how you basically cut it. Um, whether you strip out the federal balance, uh, the Federal Reserve balance sheet, whether you strip out um, excess reserves, I mean the reality is is you are having a, a contraction in that money supply growth. Now, 
I, to be honest with you, I don't really have a clear view. I mean, there, part of me thinks that it's this is a natural occurrence. We had an incredible sort of over, we over-egged the system, both on the fiscal side and on the monetary policy side. And this is sort of the deflating of that, and maybe this is the wrong word, but bubble basically, that, you know, that, that enormous sort of, sort of um, that uh, policy push. And, and so it's kind of natural that after such an enormous expansion that you would have some kind of contraction. Um, so that's that's one side of it, and and then that's sort of maybe the the sort of more rosier side of it. The the negative side is if you do have a contraction in money supply, that is a harbinger of credit uh, contraction. That's a harbinger of tighter uh, monetary policy conditions. That's very 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 bad for the economy. I, to be honest with you, Steve, I don't know. I haven't. I'm a little bit sort of in the middle, which is maybe not the most exciting answer, but I just sort of haven't figured it out. I think there's like way too many moving parts. I think it's too easy to just say oh, money supply growth is negative. We're screwed. You know. I think it's a lot about bank lending, which actually is also slowing. So, well, I, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of curious, Keith, your thoughts, because I know like, you know, everyone seems to be talking about a looming credit crunch, uh, given, given the, uh, you know, the issues with deposits and a lot of these regional uh, banks in the U S and obviously the turmoil that's happening, for example, in commercial real estate, um, you know, naturally banks are pretty hesitant to, to issue credit uh, and credit being the lifeblood of the economy. So kind of curious how, uh, you know, how you're looking at, you know, some of the data, not only with US CPI, but uh, with monetary M2 growth. Yeah, I think it's a lot easier, actually, if you just look at the growth year after year, and just take the number for what it is, and not read too many things. Nah, you got it. You got <laughs> Rich, Rich is rolling his eyes now. You know, Rich <laughs> and I have a lot of fun talking about these things, and uh, but that's just a thing with you know any kind of data point or, or metric. Sometimes we, we can you get really tear it apart and go, ah, oh, yeah, that you know this not fell off there, and it, it's you know that's what you need it to think about. Um, I just think that you know, with with the you know, with with this data point year over year growth rolling off so quickly, that I mean that's what had that's what threw twenty twenty two off, you know, from a, a risk on risk off perspective, um, and you know, it, it continues to happen here, and I think it's just really a function of where the central banks have now reached the point where you know, I, I think the Fed will end QT at, at some point soon. That's that's what they'll have to do, and um, you, you know, this so year. Yeah, I, I think we're getting we're getting close to that day. It's happening, and they might have to end it really for uh, like non-monetary policy reasons. It might might be for other like overnight, you know, repo markets and stuff like that. So, um, and there's there's other things happening, but I think the point though, I mean, right now everyone is sort of looking at you know CPI data and PPI data. You know, it's giving you the signal that the central banks are going to have to stop tightening they're going to definitely pausing and maybe cutting and it, it's risk on but uh that that's you know we're, we're in this transition period and, and i suspect that's going to tighten up it's going to be pretty hard here at, at some point soon i mean so right now i mean uh so today's thursday right so i mean it's a, a pretty green day out there in the market like 80 dollars flying green shoots it's green shoots green bean bean stocks and everything it is looking good looking really so, but good. that that actually brings me to the inflation print which we I sort of jumped over which is um the inflation print you know headline fell uh to 
from 6.0 estimates were uh, five one i think coming into it five two five two five and two. and 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 that one you know this is getting complicated that one percent drop of the year over year number <laughs> oh god was actually a huge huge decline i think it's only happened like six times in the last 40 years but that's the headline figure and that headline figure is getting dragged down because of energy prices so okay but there's a couple of things that I think were under the hood that I thought were really interesting, which might put, which might allow us to push back on this. Fed's going to cut all this stuff narrative, which is, um, you know, we've talked we've talked about the breadth of inflation in the U.S. It hasn't at all slowed, so that's important. Um, and then one of the series that I really like to look at. This is the core, and Steve, you will like this, core X shelter. <laughs> um, and that stopped falling year on year and is actually and and actually was flat. So it's at 3.7. And so to me, that is was a huge, not red flag, that's a bit too strong, but it's something, I mean, next month, that's the only thing I'll be looking at. Because if you have a situation where core X shelter is starting to stabilize, but at three and a half four percent and then you get the fill up from energy prices and all these consumer goods which again remember we talked about this the contribution went from very little to a lot and then now it is back to a little but what if energy prices start to crawl up again and you get a situation where your headline stops falling and then that core x shelter component hangs out in the threes um, three and a half, three, four. And then again, finally, the coup de gras, which is the PCE services, which hasn't at all stopped falling. And so if those number, if those three things sort of happen, I don't think that I think the, the, the view that the Fed's going to cut or whatever, I think that that's way too dovish. And I think it'll surprise people. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think there are, uh, I know people are saying, hey, the Fed's going to cut, they're going to cut. They have to stop hiking first. Right. <laughs> yeah, fine. Sorry. yeah, and I'm not trying to be funny. <laughs> no, with it, no, right? but you're right. I screwed. I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. Yeah, and I can be a real funny guy when I need to, but they they have to stop hiking first, you know, and it, and that's the call. And but the real challenge, I mean, it, it literally, it it really feels like we could be heading this, you know, this textbook stagflationary environment. Maybe inflation remains sticky at the three percent number or four or something like that, and. The economy rolls over, but you know that the, the numbers are rolling off, and you know we we knew that would happen. Where the floor is, I think we're getting closer and closer. You know, the elevator's coming down. Is it the fourth floor we stop at, Rich, or the third? I, I don't know, but we're getting we're getting closer. I take there. the stairs. I take the stairs. You take the stairs. I'll take he, the elevator when it's. He's got uh, an elevator in his house. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> an escalator. Get it right. Um, did you hear about uh, France this week? I heard about Germany. <laughs> Tell yeah. us about France. <laughs> okay, so yeah, let's go with the Germany. But real quick, these are these are just interesting things. They're not a market mover, but you know they catch my eye. So uh, you know, this week Macron went to Beijing to meet ah, with yes. uh, Xi Jinping, and uh, he poop. announced we want to build a strategic autonomy away from the U.S. And of course, that's just another way of, you know, also saying, you know, I want to kiss China's ass. You know, that, that's what, <laughs> what came out of that. Um, but politically, this this is pretty important because there's a lot of, you know, fissures developing around the world right now. Uh, you know, we saw what was happening with, with China and Taiwan this week, which was just pretty amazing if you think about it. Uh, but this for France... This BRICS talk is getting exhausting, by the way. The what? 
what talk? This whole BRICS conversation. The end oh, of BRICS. the U.S. dollar. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes. absolutely. I was, I was thinking of another BRI. It's like, you know, it's like, like Twitter is a great about. sentiment indicator. And like when everybody is posting about BRICS, it's just uh, it t- ringing the bell at the, at the top. Yeah, it, it could be. Uh, but, anyway, but here's the you know so-called leader of Europe right now because there's no other leader in Europe. Think about it; he's not coming out of Germany right now. Um, but he's basically close to China at the exact same time. The Americans and, and the Chinese are staring each other down over Taiwan, and he comes out saying, "Yeah, you know, we want to move away from the American." Meanwhile, the Americans have you know all their troops lined up along the eastern border in Europe to protect them from this and that. It's just a, this partial experience. I mean, I'm just looking at this and I'm thinking, what the heck is it? Of course, you know, it is a way to deflect attention away from what's happening in Paris as well. But, um, you know, this European place that we all hear about, it's just weird, Rich. It's just weird. Now, of, of course, you know, France linking to China in one way, at least we don't have any of those links here in Canada. So we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> Zing. No, no, Canada has no links to China whatsoever. Um, Cut, delete. CRTC, if you're listening, please don't ban us. Anyway. What were the Germans up to? What are they? Uh, uh, I know the answer, by the way. I know the answer to my question. But what's the German news this week? Which was very interesting, by the way. It's a bit of an eye roll, but it's a fact. I mean, despite my proclivity for pumping oil and all things oil, I actually think that eventually we'll need to move away from fossil fuels. And the way we will move away from fossil fuels is by exploiting a technology that is older than Keith, if you can imagine. And that's um, nuclear power. Nuclear. Uh, It's nuclear power. And the Germans do not agree whatsoever. And I'm just absolutely furious by this. Uh, The Germans um, shut down their three remaining nuclear power plants. They either did it a couple weeks ago or they're going to do it in a couple weeks. And I just want to express my outrage at how freaking stupid that is. Um, In 2004, the Germans produced 160 million megawatt hours of nuclear power. Um, For those who aren't following along at home, nuclear power is uh, emissions free. Um, Yes, it's expensive. It's not at all dangerous. I I will fight that myth tooth and nail. Uh, But what I mean, whatever, they had an entire apparatus that produced carbon free or emissions free energy at an enormous scale. And they have shut it down all of it down uh first of course it got started with fukushima germany is not near japan as far as i know and nowhere near a fault line and yet the greens and sort of the feckless uh politicians in germany have spent the last 20 years shutting down all their nuclear power plants and i think it's a freaking outrage um and if you care about the environment at all you should also be outraged by that and so i had to i'm sorry i know that's like a total tangent uh, but for I forgive me, I had to get that out, or else I was going to uh, explode like a nuclear power plant. <laughs> no, no. Uh, so it's just nuts. It's absolutely nuts. Like just to give it, just to give you perspective here. Like there are certain countries, like France. Back to France, something like 75 percent of their energy needs are from nuclear power. Uh, have been for years and years and years. There's, you know, I mean, Ukraine, God love them, same thing. I mean, there's loads of countries that. Um, South Korea is building nuclear powers at, at an increasing rate, um, not only at rate, um, over less time for less money. 
the safeguards, the engineering's better. I mean, if you care about the environment, if you care about carbon emissions or anything like that, what Germany is doing is a complete outrage. Um, and I just thought that Canadians should should know about that. So didn't um, didn't yeah. Japan just just run a summit like last week or something? Basically, saying like they're going to try to lead the charge again on nuclear power and. Yeah, they have to. So Japan is a massive, massive net importer of energy. So they have no natural resources. Japan is wonderful in many, many, many ways, but it just lacks the natural resources that you would need. It doesn't have coal, it doesn't have natural gas. Um, and what they do have is fantastic engineers and crap loads of cement. And so for a long time, um, they made a concerted effort, just like the French did after the oil embargo in 1973, to shift away from fossil fuels and move towards nuclear power. Obviously, Fukushima scared the lights, daylights out of everyone fine. Uh, but obviously what's happened in the last couple of years with the natural gas prices skyrocketing with oil being really expensive, the Japanese have walked that back. Um, and are, and are, they're going to, I mean, who knows what will happen, but my guess is that they'll start either rebuilding or expanding their nuclear um, power plant and, and production, electricity production. Um, because it's, in my view, it's the only way forward. I, I welcome the comments to challenge that view, but it's just, it's really, really crazy what the Germans are doing and it's shame on them, frankly. Maybe that's what uh, Uncle Warren was doing in Japan. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Firing up the old nuclear plant. <laughs> that's right. Hey, well, hey guys, uh, I, I have to run because I have uh, some work. Actually, work every now and then. Some real, real job. <laughs> yeah, uh, just... uh, but but anyway, sorry guys, I, I do run. Thank you everyone uh, for the week. Great conversation, and I'll leave it to you guys to tie it up. Hey, I guess Keith is the one wrapping up this week. That's all we got. Uh, so leave us uh, a five star review. Hit the thumbs up. Share it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Let's continue to build the Looney Hour community. Uh, we appreciate it, and we'll see you next week.